welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, July 24th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. New York is a city of more than 8 million people which makes shrinking our environmental footprint a pretty big job. One of the people helping is Nilda Mesa. She's in charge of the environmental efforts at Columbia University, a buzzing urban hub of more than 40,000 students and staff. Last week, I paid Mesa a visit to see what her job is about. It turns out she's got her hands full. In this week's podcast, you'll hear about some of the initiatives helping to green up this local Ivy League and the challenges that come with it. It's one of those hot, steamy, humid days in Manhattan, and I'm in search of Columbia University's green guru. I find her on the top floor of a building on West 115th Street. I'm Nilda Mesa. I'm the Assistant Vice President for Environmental Stewardship at Columbia University. I'm here because I've heard great things about Mesa and her environmental initiatives at one of the biggest urban university campuses in the country. I work with the three campuses of the university with faculty, staff, and students, of which there are about 44,000, to lessen the environmental footprint of the university. Environmental stewardship really covers a broad range of areas. It covers everything from trying to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to improving recycling to reusing and repurposing surplus furniture and equipment. We work a lot with students on initiatives that they care about, and it's it's kind of like that. It's a little bit of everything. One quick look around Mesa's office shows the diversity of her job. On one wall, a giant whiteboard lists about 50 projects in the works, ranging from campus composting to light bulb changing to green roof construction. These, says Mesa, represent only a sliver of what they're working on. Next to Mesa, on a filing cabinet, sits a copy of Sustainability for Dummies, Ironic, considering her background. I'm a recovering lawyer. When I got out of law school, so I went to Harvard Law School, and when I got out, I wound up working in a public interest law firm that had things like consumer and civil rights, but they also included environmental cases in their work. And I was assigned one of those cases, and I got completely hooked from doing it. And then I went to work at the California Attorney General's office in the environment section on a lot of natural resources, endangered species work, but also toxic cleanup and waste issues, hazardous waste management issues. Moved back to D.C. where I had worked before law school and wound up in the Clinton administration working at the Environmental Protection Agency in the Office of General Counsel on NAFTA, on the Environmental Side Agreement. I was the lead U.S. attorney for the government on the Environmental Side Agreement and then went to the Department of the Air Force, which some people might find to be kind of a stretch, but actually there are a huge number of environmental issues associated with the military, and then also worked at the Council on Environmental Quality at the White House under Katie McGinty. But then after that, I went to art school, and which has been altogether everything everything works for this kind of a job because you need to be creative and definitely a self-starter in a lot of ways and also you need to have a certain amount of diplomacy and you need to be able to sort of pull people together. Mace has been at Columbia for a little over two years. Surprisingly, That makes her somewhat a veteran in the field. Most colleges and universities at this point, I think, 
have somebody in place who does this kind of work. But when I started a couple of years ago, I was one of the very first, actually. So it's the campus sustainability movement is something that's just taken off uh, in the last few years. For Mesa, a big part of figuring out how to make Columbia greener was establishing how green they already were. Well, when I started, there was actually stuff that was going on very much on the sort of grassroots local level, and nobody knew anything about it. You know, offices had switched to buying recycled paper, or, you know, it struck me was that a lot of folks felt very isolated and alone and thought that nobody else at the university cares about this stuff, but I do, and I'm doing this, but gee, I wish I could find some company <laughs> kind of thing. And so one of the things that became apparent to me was that there is this level of interest and in that there is this big misperception that people weren't interested in, and that was completely false. So I think where we are now is there's more awareness on campus of some of the things that are happening. We leave Mesa's office and head up a flight of stairs around the corner. We're going to check out one of the projects Mesa's already implemented. How long have you had this up here for? Um, about a year and a half. Ooh. Oh, so wow. this is the second summer. Yep. Cool. Our little so National Science Foundation recently gave us uh, almost half a million dollars for research on green roofs and how green roofs function. And green roofs are touted as a great strategy for reducing urban heat island effect and energy usage within buildings and slowing down stormwater from going into the combined sewer drains, like, for example, like we have here in New York City. But we don't actually know enough about how they work, and particularly in New York City and, you know, this type of environment. So we have this interdepartmental, interdisciplinary team of scientists and researchers who are looking at various aspects of the green roofs that we have up here at the university and trying to figure out, you know, what works and doesn't work and, you know, really what are the benefits of, of these. So this is the second summer that we've had it. The first summer that I was here, we didn't have this. And then the summer that we got it, I noticed a huge difference in how many times I had to turn on the air conditioning. No way. Yeah, it was a big wow. difference. Yeah, But of course, because I'm not really a scientist, I didn't measure it. I could just sort of go, well, anecdotally, I know yeah. I didn't, you know. So let me show you this. So for yeah. example, so right I'm next sorry. to the roof on this building with all this, you know, lush, vegetated covering, which is even more lush after all the rain we've had, Yeah, you can see that on the townhouse next to us, there is a non-vegetated roof that's painted with reflective paint. So the idea with the reflective paint, of course, is that, you know, it's not like the standard black asphalt roof that really just soaks up all of the heat. So this actually is a pretty decent solution in certain ways for urban heat island effect. Now, if you stand here... Yeah. And you put your like your hand over here. Oh, I see. Out. Okay, so I've okay. got my hand over the green so, roof. So notice the temperature there, and then and put then... it over here, over this side of the oh, roof. Oh, wow. Right. Big you difference. can actually feel a difference right. between the air over the vegetative roof and the exactly. air not. And this roof is what's known as a cool roof. The other roof that's painted with silver paint is known wow. as a cool roof. So this isn't even close to what happens with an asphalt roof. And so how much does it cost to put something like this in? It varies with the kind of system that you put in. And different roofs can withstand 
different kinds of weight. So we put in a system that's very, very lightweight and very easy to take care of because we wanted to, you know, we figured, okay, we're just trying this out. We put two roofs in at the same time. And we figured, well, we're just trying this out. We want it to be kind of idiot-proof, and like for us <laughs> especially. And <laughs> we want it to work. And so this one, I think, was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 to $30 a square foot, something like that. So it may be like a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, it's yeah. not, it really not bad. One of the cool things about this roof that I did not anticipate was the number of critters that come here in the summer. So we usually, it's not today, maybe because it's, it's like too bright and sunny and hot, but you usually see like butterflies, you'll hear the crickets up here. I mean, it's really wild. You have something like 15 green roofs? We have about, we have seven, seven at this point. And this one, and the, the two original ones are the ones that are instrumented right now by um, the team of scientists and researchers from uh, Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory and the engineering school and also NASA um, here. So, uh, and then, you know, we're looking at what other roofs we might want to instrument or not. There have been some really key moments that have come up also in the last few years that just weren't there beforehand. So one of them, for example, is the mayor's office. You know, the mayor came out with Plan YC, a long-term plan for the city of New York, and did the city's first ever greenhouse gas emissions inventory. The mayor's office approached a number of colleges and universities in this area and said, okay, as a city, we're committing to reducing on our operations side our greenhouse gas emissions 30% within 10 years, which at that time was 2017. And we challenge you colleges and universities to join us in this. And, you know, we calculate roughly that if everybody does this, then we will reduce X percentage, you know, citywide and so forth. So we signed up for this. We looked at, you know, with the information that we had internally and thought, yeah, we actually, we could do this. And so it did other, maybe nine or so other colleges and universities. Now I believe the number is up to 13 or 14, something like that. One of the things that led us to do, and we, we would have done this anyway, but this sort of focused folks on the importance of doing it, I think a little bit sooner. So we did a greenhouse gas emissions inventory, which is online. It's at environment.columbia.edu. Anybody can see it. And we also did an action plan so we could see how it was that we were going to get to that 30% reduction in, you know, by 2017. We update the greenhouse gas inventory every year. Last year was the first year that we did it. So right now we're in the midst of updating it. Some of the stuff that we look at, we look at energy, obviously. We also look at transportation usage and waste, because a lot of greenhouse gas emissions come from the decomposition of waste, especially organic waste, and refrigerants, which is another contributor. So what we found from doing this was that well over 90% of the university's greenhouse gas emissions are attributable to buildings and how they're operated. So that focused us pretty clearly on, you know, the kinds of stuff that we need to do. When it comes to Columbia's buildings, it's not the 20-something dorm room students who are sucking most of the energy. It's the scientists. The residential buildings have less of an impact than, say, the science buildings, you know, with the labs, because the labs with fume hoods draw a tremendous amount of energy. So, you know, one of the things, for example, that we're working on now, we have a lab design working group that's made up of a number of different offices. And NYPD last year revised their fume hood 
ordinance or regulations or whatever so that now we can use more energy efficient fume hoods. And so as a result of that, we were like revising the internal guidelines for what to use when and so forth. A big part of Mesa's job is working with students and faculty who've got green ideas and seeing if they're tangible. The first year that I was here, we had an undergraduate student who was very interested in taking waste cooking oil and turning it into biodiesel. So we had a couple of teams of engineering students look at this and could it be done? And we worked with facilities and we worked with the part of the university that works with the shuttle buses to see if the shuttle bus companies would take this if we could make it. And in the end, what we learned from going through this process was that we could do this. We had the right amount of cooking oil waste every year. It would work as a blend, you know, for the shuttle buses and the bus company that actually owns these uh, was interested in doing it. The problem was setting up basically a refinery in Manhattan to do this in a residential area. So a little tricky. What we wound up doing was we found out about the Doe Fund, which has folks in the community who are going through job training programs and so forth, and they pick up waste cooking oil from places for free. And then they take it to a biodiesel refinery. So we didn't have to build one. (laughs) And so it's work. So this to us is like, but this is a huge hit because not only are we working with folks in the area and helping with the job training and so forth, but we're getting rid of the waste cooking oil, turning it into biodiesel, and it's free. Mesa says one of her biggest challenges is space. Columbia's campuses are squished into a few blocks with little green space or additional building space available. But with more than 44,000 students and staff, Columbia is a microclimate and one that could play a big role in shrinking New York City's environmental footprint. Mesa recognizes this, but also says it's a matter of involving communities around the university as well. The U.S. Green Building Council, when they set up their LEED programming, I guess they started at this point over 10 years ago now. LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. They were focused on buildings and portions of buildings more than anything else. And what the pilot program does that's that's exciting is it looks at a neighborhood and it looks at a neighborhood as an entity. So it incorporates sort of principles of new urbanism and, you know, things like walkable streets, multiple uses, easy access to public transportation, close proximity of housing to jobs and, you know, things like that. And so it's much more of a kind of overall systems approach rather than a kind of a building by building thing. Manhattanville Campus Expansion Project is one of the few that's in a dense urban area. I think when they initially thought of this pilot program, it was looking at kind of, you know, suburban sprawl and and those issues and how do you shorten the distances and you know, make things more dense. What happened was that we were kind of going along down these lines anyway, and so we were looking at the campus plan as, uh, you know, something involving mixed uses and walkable streets and so forth. And then when when they announced this program, we thought, actually, this is really right up our alley. And so we signed up for it, and it's been a very useful process for us to go through and figure out, okay, you know, have we thought about these various factors or not? Or, you know, how do we incorporate this or, or not? And then we've also been in touch with USGBC and given them our impressions of how they could improve this program, and, you know, particularly in an urban setting. Mesa and I leave her office and walk to Columbia's main campus. We're standing on the main lawn near the 116th Street entrance. You know, so this is the main library here, Butler Library. 
um, and then just behind it are a number of dorms and or as they say now residence halls. One of our engineering professors set up a study to see how social networks within a dorm can affect energy usage and so he wired Watt Hall no lie, that's the name of it, <laughs> to, and, you know, so everybody who lives there who wanted to participate in the study could see how much energy they used, and depending on the group, some of them could see how much energy their buddy used, they could see how much energy the whole building was using, the folks participating in the study, and so forth, and so, and then there was a control group that, you know, where it was like, who cares, you know, they don't have any information about anybody, and they do whatever they want. So one of the things that he found in the initial results of this study, and he wants to you know, carry forward this research, is that the energy usage patterns dropped something like 20% with one of the groups. And it was just based on knowing sort of who was using how much energy. I mean, it was really stunning. And so that's the kind of stuff that we love. You know, it's like, here... Go, go ahead, you know, yeah. go work in this dorm and tell us stuff because yeah. then that helps us figure out, okay, if that's the case, then maybe, you know, what can we learn from this and what could we be doing, you know, other parts of the university to cut energy consumption and greenhouse gas emissions. As I dream about what version 2.0 or 3.0 or 5.0 of what we're doing could look like, I think about things like integrating nature more into urban life and having the edges be a little blurrier than they are now. I lived for a while overseas in France and you have much more of a sense, not just France, but, you know, Spain, England, you know, wherever, but there's much more of a sense there of, you know, the country or nature not necessarily being quite that far away. And I think you have that sense in other cities in the United States as well. New York is, it's a challenge like that. For more on what Columbia University is doing to green up, visit environment.columbia.edu. For Science in the City, I'm Elena Rangi. Thanks for tuning in. If you can't get enough of Science in the City, you should try following us on Twitter. Visit us at www.twitter.com slash city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our new website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.